When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's so nice to have you. Nice to see you. Thanks for popping on by. Uh, it's the dog days of summer. Rebecca and I were just talking about it's being hot and it being slow. And it, you know, we're into this middle quartile or whatever of emotional feelings about COVID. I think the news is pretty grim about COVID. And uh, here in Portland, Oregon, there's some other stuff going on, as you may have seen in the news downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter was up throwing up all night last night. So it's, um, I'm not sure we're at the bottom of the barrel, but my toes can feel it at least, you know, is that, I think that's the, you know, that's, that's the, that's kind of where we are, um, today. So we're, we're going to get some book news. We'll talk about what's going on in the world of books and reading as we always do here on the book, Riot Podcast. I hope you all are, all are doing well. Um, I said before, we're going to go, we're coming back to, um, multiple episodes a week. And uh, we're going to do some summer reading favorites. I'd like to hear in our email, podcast at bookriot.com, if you've had a great book you've read this summer. Maybe we'll shout a couple out that people are, are talking about, too. Also want to shout out that uh, I was a guest over at Get Booked. Um, our podcast was our personalized book recommendation show that Jen Northington and Amanda host regularly. Amanda was on PTO, so I jumped over there to talk about some books. Jen was very kind and threw me some softballs <laughs> about some business books, uh, some lit oh, fic, you know, some productivity. Yeah. So anyway, I'm over there. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. So you go check that out. If, you, if you're not listening to the show, it's, it's a fun, it's a really fun show. And it's it fun is, to, to dip in for a little bit. It's really fun. And what they, what Jen and Amanda do every week is like so phenomenal and difficult yes. that I, like as a guest on there, which I think I've only done it once, the please send me softball questions is like the only way <laughs> to, yeah, to, ju- right. to jump in. And it, like it's just impressive and really great. And people have such specific requests, mm-hmm. which I guess a decade into book related professional life, I should not be surprised about like the depth and particularities of people's like idiosyncratic reading preferences. But every time it's like, really, you, 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 all 17 of these boxes are not only things that you need to have ticked, but like you're aware of it. Super interesting to me. And also I've already read the first six you've thought of. So don't, don't pick those. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So that, that show, if you like the shows we do for our our dad's grads holiday recommendation show a couple times a year, You'll like that show. In fact, that show grew out of that segment mm-hmm. we did on this show that we knew we liked it. We thought it could be a standalone podcast, um, and and so we did it there. Same with all the books. If you're not listening to all the books, um, co-hosted by Liberty Hardy regularly with a rotating series of guests at Feeling, because talk about something you can't even do if you're a regular co-host <laughs> is what Liberty does for all the books, which is um, take in like one of those baleen whales, like all the books in the ocean, mm-hmm. and then filter out <laughs> – some of the most interesting ones and highlights them every week. And she not only is a, she's not only looking at them and reading the blurbs and getting a sense of them. She's probably already read most of them and she's probably read the backlist of the people she's recommending and talking about there. Um, a tour de force uh, from Liberty on a week in, week out basis on all the books. So just just a small sampling of the wider canon of the Book Riot family of, of podcasts, too. We've also got a whole bunch of other ones, too. Go to bookriot.com slash listen. You can check them all out there. All right, let's do a sponsor and come back to our nerdy, specific, idiosyncratic corner of nothingness here. Um, slow news week, though. I, I think we could talk the full show about the best-selling books of 2020 because you're like, we're pretty, we're pretty light on links. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Let me drop mm-hmm. one in here because I think there's kind of a lot to say about this, not the least of which is what's at the number one spot, which I shouldn't be surprised by, <laughs> and yet I am. And so, like, how dumb am I? And also, is that okay? Uh, because the best-selling books of 2020 so far, Publishers Weekly pulled, you know, their BookScan data. I don't know what kind of a deal they have with BookScan that it can publish this. Like, do they pay? Is it part of their mm, promotional? I've always question. wondered um, the flow of, of digits there. But no surprise. Well, let me ask you this. Are you surprised that Where the Crawdags Sting is still the best-selling book? And, uh, again, it's not the best-selling book, the best-selling adult book, because a YA title, we'll get to that in a minute. But 
it's 200K above the next yeah. best-selling adult book. Maybe that's the surprising part. I don't know. Yes, I am. And I've been sitting here trying to decide if I should or shouldn't have been hmm. surprised by that. It just, it feels like where the crawdads sing ended like last fall. Maybe yes, it feels yep. like it fell off last fall. I guess it hasn't. I wish that these charts had a breakdown of what were the best sellers. Like what were the best sellers like before late May oh. when this round of like this new yeah. iteration of the black lives matter movement popped up and all of the anti-racist and like big history titles around that surged in sales because where the crawdads sing is number one and then the first of the activist books for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. um, is white fragility on the list and it's at number five and it is about 250 ish 225 ish thousand copies behind where the crawdads sing but if you normalized for like how many copies had each of those sold before like may 23rd and how many of they sold after how would things have changed it yeah it doesn't feel to me like there could be this much ceiling for more people who want to read the book to not have already bought where the crawdads sing but apparently my feelings don't matter. <laughs> when we did our episode on it in the fall, I thought we were at the we were coming late to the game, right? But yeah, I guess same. not. The 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 tale continues to lengthen um, on where the crawdads sing. Go, I'll put the link in the show notes for that show. Uh, if you heard listen to us, you know we're no great fans of that particular. Though we are a greater fan of that book than number seven on this list, American <laughs> Dirt, uh-huh. which has sold three hundred and sixty two thousand copies. In one of those A-B test the universe situations, um, I wonder if if Janine Cummins was someone other than who she was and or I would just like to know what the impact of the discourse around American Dirt did or did not have on sales. I I don't know how I could – what the other universe I would need to construct to see. Like Mm. is this the number was going to get if everyone was just sort of like, God, another one of these and – it was kind of let go or whatever, or there wasn't the same controversy for some reason. It still got the same publicity and marketing. I, I'm just curious to see, w- is this lower or higher than Flatiron would have thought going into February? Sort of what mm-hmm. they had on the books, they knew it was a big deal, and yet it hadn't blown up uh, in their faces in the way that it did. Because 362, you're, you're one of the top 10 selling books of adult titles of the year, that's a pretty great outcome from a sales point of view, right? I mean, that's pretty good. There's only – you've got where the crawdag scene, which is, again, it's it's the exception that proves the rule. You throw that out. Above Behind that, you have Magnolia Table Volume 2, which is a whole – that's not even a book sale, right? Like that's a pop culture lifestyle, a lifestyle book. lifestyle. Right. Yeah. The Room Where It Happened is a Trump book. Like, again – there's like the book books and then there's the things that connect to larger things in the universe that happen mm-hmm. to be books. It's kind of how I think about this. Gaines and Bolton is that. I think the next real book book you get is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And then you get White Fragility, Little Files Everywhere, which is an amazing showing for Celeste Ng. You know, again, that book has sold a billion copies since it started, but also the, the show came out. It got pretty good reviews on the whole. And then American Dirt and then How to Be Anti-Racist, The Boy, the Mole, and the Fox, and the Horse. Um, we talked about that before. That was the Barnes & Noble pick for the book of the year for 2019. Continues to sell very well into 2020. And then The Splendid in the Vile, which is the new Eric Larson. So that's a book book too, I would say. So there's your, your there's your top 10. I'm not I'm not loving that White Fragility is outselling How to Be Anti-Racist. I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't, and it's not really that close. It's 160,000 copies, Rebecca Shinsky. I'm not yeah. a huge fan of that, I have to admit. The, I mean, aside from, you know, white people being more comfortable with something like that, I think there might be availability stuff going yeah. on too. Like, we can't discount the impact of um, how many of these books were not widely available or there weren't a ton of them in print and then the surge in interest in books went to reprint. So like White white Fragility had been out for a few years. I Mm -hmm. don't know if it was selling steadily before mid-May and How to Be an Anti-Racist came out last summer. um, And I think it's still in hardcover. I don't think there's a paperback. So there might be a price situation too. That's a confounding factor as well. Right. Yeah. It came out last summer in hardcover. Typically a hardcover book would be, it would be starting to come out in paperback like this July or, you know, right now or in August, there's not a, um, a paperback date listed. And why would there be? They're selling a billion of hardcovers. Why would there be? But they were probably not like printing a whole bunch of them. (laughs) 
in April. So no. that could be going on also with that. I, but I don't love it. Um, as we've discussed, you know, if you are doing your homework here, like there are you know, specific things that white people need to interrogate and mm. talk to each other about um, the experience of whiteness in unpacking and dismantling white supremacy. But do your homework and read books by people of color who are teaching you about their experiences and um, direct lived experience about why this is harmful in all of the many ways. That it what is. else? Um, what else what in the adult? Else? We'll go on the children's a, YA in a second, but what else I'm in the adult? Surprised list? that the Kobe Bryant memoir is that high. I mean, he um, died. The, I mean, I, that's, that's true. But like two hundred thirty-eight thousand—that's yeah. a lot. Um, Burn after writing by Sharon Jones is the one that I had to Google Me too. from this list, and it's like a—it's a guided journal. Um, I, I don't know anything about that book. I don't know anything about Sharon either. Jones except my beloved. I don't think it's the same Sharon it's Jones. It's not the that same both one. That was the, the first the thing I googled. I was yeah. like, "Is this a Sharon Jones and the Dap King memoir yeah. that I don't know about?" And how it's is not. that possible that we didn't right. know about that? <laughs> exactly. Um, it's not. It's a, a guided journal mm-hmm. um, that private prompts for personal reflection, self exploration, and fueling creativity, which. Sounds great. I have no idea um, how it got this popular. And it talks about social media. So I wonder if Sharon Jones is well known on social media with people who are cooler or younger or both cooler and younger. Um, I mean, hard not to be at my point. <laughs> at my stage, you know, <laughs> getting towards the end of the bell curve of uncool and old. There's, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. I, you <laughs> don't have to say anything. Title. Move it on. Move along. Move along. Don't dwell. Don't dawdle. Here, I will. My, I was kind of pausing. Of like, I wonder, listeners. Like, this book has sold so many copies. That yeah. There's a good chance our listeners, someone's encountered it. So, if you picked up Burn After Writing by Sharon Jones, if you would let us know how you became yeah. aware of it, and if in fact she does have an audience that's younger and cooler than we are, um, that would be great. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. I'm excited to see Educated by Tara Westover still cooking. Um, and then I think the big surprise on these lists that should never really be a surprise is how few of the titles are yeah. front list fiction. And the next one is The Tattooist of Auschwitz by... Is that even Morris. front list at this point? Is it? I don't... I mean, I think it was oh, a paperback a or original. Oh, yeah. It's Harper Paperbacks. So it's... Well, yeah. It kind of falls into a weird spot, mm-hmm. right? A paperback original is that front list? Sure. But it's been out for... A, it was the best-selling yeah. book of last year. So it's been out for a while. That's true. And then so you want to talk about race um, brings up... The, the bottom, mm-hmm. the last spot. Uh, yeah, Stephen King, If It Bleeds, I guess, continue, you know, that book sold very well. One of the better selling Stephen King's, well, actually, the Institute sold very well. Stephen King can sell books. What do you want me to say? I don't know what to say. <laughs> I guess as a, as another data point into thinking about the shape of sales for the year compared to where the crowd is saying, we get Becoming at number 12, mm-hmm. which, you know, has been around. It had a big sales and it, it petered out more than where the crowd acting. I mean, yeah. it's incredible and- stuff. You know, one thing we talked about last year with Crawdads was how big of a big story that book was and how it just kind of subsumed yep. the the space for another, you know, like big novel of the year. And it's looking for a variety of reasons, I think. Many of them are existential. Mm-hmm. That like twenty twenty is currently at least is not gonna have a big novel. That's um, American that, Dirt though, Rebecca. I mean, I just I, I refuse I, well, to acknowledge uh, again it. A, a best-selling frontlist novel. That's the one. That that's it. Yeah, you know, I think it. it I think that this list is going to look different. I need to believe. Let me. Yeah, I was going to say, do you do you think it will or do you want it to? And I'm right I there with to, you. Yeah, I need to yeah. believe that this list is going to look different at the end of the year because the social cost of like promoting American dirt has increased quite a bit. And I think the social cost of like being a vocal fan of that book um, is higher now than it was before mid-May, before Mm. this, the racial movement picked back up again Mm. and, or, you know, came back into public consciousness. Or it gave it cover. I mean, who was happier about all this than Janine? I mean, again, who benefited from COVID and and BLM sort of blowing up the news cycle than American Dirt? Right, yeah. And I think hopefully American Dirt will just sort of quietly fall down the list. Decompose. It's not going to, like, it was on a bunch of the best books of the year so far lists, which was super disappointing Mm. to see that. And I hope that by the time we get to November and December and publication are putting together their best books of 2020 list 
people are going to be exercising better judgment than highlighting American dirt. Um, you know, now that you say that, it makes me, it, it reminds me we have an, the other, there's so many confounding factors in a reg, quote unquote, mm-hmm. normal year. One is how many books got pushed back. I mean, right. so many books have been, are now coming out July, August, September, October that were scheduled for April, May, June, that it may have given more room from incumbents, for lack of a better term, um, to, to, to soak up more of the sales, right? Like if there's not the next big Reese book club book coming out, then there people are going to go pick up where the crawdad sing or something else like that. I'm not really sure. And like, I think it's great. Reese is an interesting thing to mention also, because a lot of the big public book clubs like Reese Witherspoon, the celebrity run stuff Mm -hmm. have pivoted to focusing on anti-racist titles recently. So I think we're going to be seeing that through hopefully for a really long time, but I think we're definitely going to be seeing it through the summer. So those are sort of publicity spaces that a big novel, you know, otherwise probably would have had. The biggest troll, I mean, again, we've joked about this before, about the book your <laughs> aunt gets you when you graduate from whatever. Is there ever a bigger troll year to give someone, oh, the places you'll go than 2020? Because you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> that was when you added this to the agenda. I was like, oh, I wonder. And we had, I think we'd even speculated about yes. it, about would Dr. Seuss make it onto the list this yep. year for a best-selling children's book titles with graduations not being a thing. Not to mention that going places is no. not a thing. <laughs> oh, the places you'll go in 2024. Is that the that's the one that should be selling right now. Uh, Dogman Fetch Twenty Two, the eighth Dogman book, is the best-selling children's. I appreciate. I mean, they're that. great. They're, they're literary puns for all the Dogman books. My first learn to write workbook, workbook, workbook by Crystal Radke <laughs> is number two. Uh, no surprise there. We knew that was selling very well. Mm-hmm. People trying to figure out something to do at home with their kids. A big preschool book came out. Um, no, the only book with no author. Because it's just a, like a workbook kind of situation is <laughs> interesting there from School Zone. Hungry Caterpillar, A Diary of Wimpy Kid, If Animals Kiss Goodnight, which I believe is a picture book, Green Eggs and Ham, another Dr. Seuss, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? A classic Eric Carl children's book, and then One Fish, Two Fish from Dr. Seuss uh, as well. And children's nothing, you know, nothing. Nothing yeah, there. Just nothing. nothing. Yeah. It's mostly I mean, dudes. there's stuff there. It's just we know this. This is stuff right. that sells. Yeah. yeah. Mostly dudes, all white yeah. people. Um, you know, interestingly, I think this is the first time that the top 20 of bestsellers of the year have had, I think it's seven people of color. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Um, that's great to see. Mm-hmm. And then YA, um, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Suzanne Collins is just way out ahead of- I got this attack. stone cold wrong, I'll admit, about sales. Uh-huh. Almost a million copies uh, already this year. Um me too. The, the reviews have been lukewarm. I mean, it wasn't a disaster, so there's that. People were enough interested in it, um, clearly, to sell. I mean, it's going to sell a million copies um, by the end of the year. Let's see. Anything else notable? There's a Cassandra Clare. There's stamped Jason Reynolds. The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Is that normal? Is that like a Dr. Seuss situation and, I, and The Giver? Like, what's going on with those? Those are popular summer reading titles. Yeah, maybe that's um, what it is. The Outsiders, The Giver. Yeah, The Outsiders and The Giver are popular summer reading titles, popular school mm-hmm. syllabi situations. And I think that's maybe what's going on yeah. there. Um. Yeah, so th- that's the Suzanne Collins. Like it's eight eight seven, and then the next one is one two four for YA. So that tells you really all you need to know um, about the shape of YA sales this year. Um, anything else, Rebecca, about this that's interesting? Interesting to see lots of backlist there yeah. on the YA list. Also, I, I, I had hope I might see such a fun age like seventeen to nineteen mm-hmm. somewhere. That was mm-hmm. the one I was like, how oh, did it squeak in there? Nickel Boys didn't you know come around. Those mid-list, you know, those mid-list lit fic titles. Um, such, a fun age, such a fun age could be commercial. Depends how you think about it. I don't know. It's, it's a little tricky, but you could go either way there. Yeah. I would, did, one of those, did one of those pop into – and again, the, the slope really shallows out at 15. So, like, mm-hmm. at 10, you're selling 350,000 copies. By the time you get to two – by the time you get to number 15 for the adults, you're selling 208, and then 205 is the next, then 203, yeah. 203, 202, 201. So there's a long tail in that. So you could, be, you could sell 5,000 fewer copies than number 20 here and be like 30 spots back because it really starts to flatten out. Um, so it's a, 
does it matter that you were 18 rather than 24 if you sold 3,000 different sales and copies? Probably not. That's just where this list is. Yeah. This will be an interesting list at the end of the year because we should have, like, we should have some big novels this year. You know, the Britt Bennett Vanishing Half is terrific. Um, That should be one of the big novels of the year. Yeah, Jesse's new book Mm -hmm. that's coming out in September should be one of the big novels of the year. And I just don't know how much space there is in our collective reading consciousness for fiction right now. Um, It'll be interesting to see what that looks like and how different it may be from what a typical end of the year roundup looks like. I mean, the Jesse has a 200,000 first printing, so that's print alone. So it would have to sell all of those (laughs) by December to, and these books are going to continue to sell, right? Like these are going to pick up some more. So even under that situation, uh, it's going to be hard to know because this is, I should also say this is just print. The shape of these could be different digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if the hardcover print issue for how to be anti-racist is a real factor in a digital version, you might see an inversion of that, right? If you can't get right. it in print, maybe people are picking up digitally in other kinds of ways. I would also guess some of the nonfiction, we would have a different shape there because pe- nonfiction tends to sell better in audio than fiction mm-hmm. has historically, though that gap is narrowing over time. All right. Let's uh, do some news uh, after the, the next break. Um, Barnes & Noble's been busy. Uh, James Daunt, who now is the CEO of not just uh, Barnes & Noble, but the Waterstones Publish, you know, book-selling group uh, in the UK. There was an interview with him in Publishers Weekly this week talking about how Barnes & Noble is affected. I guess my characterization was it's not as bad as it could be, not great. They're using... Uh, they used the stores being closed down to accelerate a lot of their renovation and reorganization mm-hmm. of the stores themselves, which seems great uh, for them. Um, I thought on the whole, I could have ex- I could have seen a world in which that interview is a lot more uh, bummery. For lack of a better term, <laughs> what do you think? What do you think of that piece? Yeah, I think it could have been a lot more bummery Mm -hmm. as well. And it's interesting to imagine, like talking about A-B testing the universe, what this could have looked like under Barnes and Noble's previous leadership. And maybe it would have been equally as good, just in a different way. Like who knows, but Barnes and Noble wasn't headed in a great direction Mm -hmm. before. Um, To have closed all but 24 of their stores for at least some period of time during COVID and then used the time to not just redesign the stores, but it looks like they're really thinking about redesigning the jobs of the booksellers or at least how individual stores function. And we've talked for a while about Barnes and Nobles are decentralizing the curation power for buying titles into individual stores away from, uh, from corporate. And Mm -hmm. during the COVID, um, Oh no, it wasn't COVID layoffs. It was, um, layoffs after Barnes and Noble was acquired um, and they were reorganizing the company. The, fiction buyer, Cecily Hensley, who for a really long time had been one of the most powerful sort of behind the curtain people. <laughs> um, Maybe the most, in, right? I mean, yeah, like the outside most of Oprah, person. sort of, yeah, in terms of moving like, units. Yeah. In, in books, in ter- especially in terms of like powerful people that yeah. no one knows of. Um, and Daunt is introducing buyers across many categories, including having um, folks who focus on local buying in each store. Um, and a an acquaintance of mine from my Barnes and Noble bookseller days, which are now a decade behind us. Um, that person is still there. Let me know that they have applied to this particular mm. position at the Barnes and Noble down the street from me. So like, mm. this is a thing that's going to appear in many, if not all Barnes and Noble locations. Like you pay attention to what's happening in your community and your uh, customer base and buy the titles that are, or have influence, I guess, on some of the titles that are going to come into the store um, so that they can be responsible for, you know, hand selling and being responsive in that way. Yeah. That's, I think, going to be really interesting too. Um, gl- I'm glad to see Barnes and Noble holding on, especially as um, Amazon has been both like a thing that people have really relied on during the pandemic and also has come under a lot of, I think, very justified criticism. Um, there have been issues with availability and issues with things getting shipped on time. And if Barnes and Noble can continue to compete and hold off that like rising Amazon monopoly, I'm happy to see it happen. I know Amazon really has been like a lifeboat made out of thorns for booksellers yeah. this, this year. It's like, <laughs> well, it's better than nothing, but good Lord, it's an uncut. <laughs> 
for what? Because yeah. I wish I didn't need. I wish the love lifeboat wasn't quite like this. It's hard to know because we covered the story. I don't know. It wasn't really a story, just a stat as much as anything mm-hmm. that print sales for the year through June were actually up 2% over last year, which is hard data to read um, to understand for what we understand is the health of the publishing industry because Barnes & Noble was closed and the books were closed for so long. Now we had bookshop.org and you could order Barnes & Noble online. But like, I think we learned that book selling could happen without essentially any brick and mortar bookstores. Now, whether or not that's good is a different situation, but it can happen. Like if Barnes & Noble went away, it kind of did for a few months. Mm -hmm. And print, print, not just all sales, print sales were up. Now, the lifeboat of thorns got thornier and bigger. It turned into more of a cruise ship of thorns, you know, a, a, a battleship of thorns. But for readers writ large, you could get books. You know, you may have to wait a little bit longer. Um, you certainly needed to chill out if you'd ordered how to be anti-racist from a black-owned bookstore. That one we certainly learned. But on the whole, kind of an odd data point. So, like, on the one hand, the good news is Barnes & Noble can survive. On the other hand... It don't matter. I mean, I don't know if that's that's one takeaway you could uh, read into it, but I thought it was a really interesting piece to see. Um, once we come in, again, I don't think people are going to be in Barnes and Nobles and Droves. Um, you know, we saw this week, I, I thought about putting this on the agenda because I think it is, it certainly is related to retail because it is about retail, but books especially is like Walmart is going to have its stores open on Black Friday. They're just mm-hmm. not going to be open. Um, which I think is a real canary in the coal mine for what the holiday shopping season is going to look like. I mean, you're not going to have, I just don't think you're going to have packed independent bookstores on the Saturday before Christmas Eve. I just don't think you're going to see it. You're going to have increased foot track over what it is, but it's not going to be historical year over year. Are those people going to order online for bookshop? They go to Amazon. Are they going to go buy video games or something else? I don't know, but I think we're start. I'm sure publishers and well, publishers, you know, maybe they're more platform agnostic than we, we would come to think anymore, but for bookstores, that's the next big thing because there's a reason it's called black party. Cause that's where you go in the black. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's possible that book sales will still do what they tend to do in, at the holiday season this year, but it yep. will be like ordering curbside from your sure. indie instead right. of the indie being, you know, packed with people. Like nowhere is going to be packed with people Mm-mm. on December 24th, barring a, a huge change in mm-hmm. the situation here that's very difficult to foresee. That's like a one percentile <laughs> chance of something changing. You know, like really, it's yeah, going like, to be something Yeah, else. nowhere is going to be packed. I think it's smart on the part of Walmart, like as a sort of, Side note, it was surprising, I think, to see Walmart declare that nationwide all of their stores were going to have mandatory mask use um, in the last week or so. And given the kinds of crowds and the kinds of like people literally being on top of each other that Black Friday tends to bring about, um, especially at Walmart stores, places that do those big sales and have like cultivated that kind of frenzy around it. Like the last thing anybody wants is that kind of frenzy for public no, health. No, no. Um, it's just not going to be a thing. Like I think the big question that I have around like the Barnes & Noble reopening specifically is like really how much do people miss browsing bookstores in a way that will make them willing to go back into a moment like this. Um, Like Barnes and Noble has reopened almost all of their stores. A lot of indies that could, that are in places where they could have reopened have chosen not to, including our indies here Mm -hmm. um, in Richmond um, and are just choosing, like we theoretically could have people in the store, but it's safer for everyone to continue with shipping and with curbside and with local delivery. And I'm curious about like the longer that folks go getting used to that and it's convenient in its own way. Um, I can see people being really excited to finally go back to their indie when they're allowed to, and just like wander around and be in the vibe of their favorite bookstore. And like you and I have both personally loved some Barnes and Noble locations, but I don't know that there's a point where like, it's worth it to me to go have the Barnes and Noble experience in the middle of a global pandemic. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's going to have to be, you know, the standard deviation of risk is going to have to go down by like seven for me to be yeah. interested in doing anything like this. Um, you know, I was reading a piece this weekend about, um, and it's it's something I should have known more about because I used to study this time period, about how much of what we know as the Roaring Twenties was sort of a euphoria after the Spanish flu of 1918 that really mm-hmm. lasted until about 1920. And I wonder if we could see something similar here. So like the short term is going to be kind of grim through the summer of next year. I really think, I mean, whatever the AV is after vaccine, talk to me about AV. I'm just going to use that shorthand. (laughs) 
But you could see a real exuberance, AV. Like people are going wild to go to concerts and buy books and do all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can really see that um, sort of a spring break kind of a vibe in America, and, and especially among some quarters, depending on how the election goes in, in the fall. You know, you could get a mm-hmm. couple of um, – you could catch double waves on the surfboard of happiness for some of us um, come next spring. So that's something to think about too is – at what point is the new normal changed enough? At what point are people just in sort of life hibernation ready to, to break out and get a, and going out there? Because I wonder about that, too, is if we don't have a vaccine and I don't feel comfortable eight months to go to Powell's, will I just become used to it? At that point, it will have been a year of not going to the library and not going to Powell's. Will I be dying to go back there? Um, or will I just be like, yeah, this used to be cool, but I've my my life has changed sufficiently that it's – a, vista, a vestige of a former life. And I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be interesting. That's I'm seeing that question a lot happening like in, in another part of my life in the yoga world yeah. where like some studios have reopened to have classes with limited capacity, largely because as soon as they were allowed to, students started kind of pressuring for it. But actual attendance of those has looked to be relatively low. Like maybe yeah. people liked the idea of being able to go back more than they were we're really ready to do the reality of mm-hmm. going back um, in this, you know, having to wear a mask and be socially distanced and not actually like, you're not actually going back to the experience that you missed. So I think like the world AV is a really interesting thought experiment because like, what would it feel like? Can we even conceptualize actually going back to the place that we mm-hmm. used to know as normal and that we do miss, but with the awareness now of like, like I, I think about, you know, like, I think travel will always be a thing in my life, but like how many airplanes have I sat on where I've just like, you know, put all my stuff all over the tray and never mm. given a second thought to like what kinds of germs might've been on there. Like, will I ever not at least have, be mindful of that again yeah. in the future? Um, how many things are going to change in a small way? And like, I think Barnes and Nobles like, and Powell's these big stores, it's maybe harder to feel safe in a place that can hold more people where like, our indies in Richmond are small enough that they could limit capacity and say, you know, five people at a time. And you'd be able to see where the other four people were at all times and like feel wow. at least maybe relatively contained. Um, I wonder if that math, if like smaller places in some capacity end up feeling safer. It's all, it's all weird. It's all very strange. TLDR it is, it is, is very weird. strange. Speaking <laughs> of things that are very strange, me being wrong. No, actually I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> Uh, Mary Trump's tell-all book that we said we thought would undersell Bolton actually did the opposite, became the best, fastest, best-selling book in the history of Simon & Schuster, selling a staggering, to quote CNN, 950,000 copies across all mediums by end of its first day on sale. Whoa, baby, that <laughs> like the, is wild stuff. It is wild. The gangbusters doesn't even... No. capture it. No. And I, man, there's just real hunger for like, how do we try to make sense of who this person is? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, other than the like sort of gossipy and room where it happened sorts of things that we've gotten from folks inside the administration, this is a real grasping at like, but how? And it's an why? origin story to use a, a comic book mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like people yeah. like origin stories. How does um the Joker become the Joker? You know, that was one right. of the most popular movies of the last year. Um, I'm guessing people buying this book are thinking of the guy as the Joker and not as Superman. I mean, there's the, there's a cadre of people that want to see Smallville. I'm guessing they're not rushing out to buy Mary Trump's tell-all book. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, maybe there's a certain amount of see seeing what's going on. I'm not sure there's anything uh, else to say about it. Again, with the Trump book, what we've historically seen is a, like a giant spike the first couple of weeks and then, whoop, you know, yeah. blown out. Um, like much like blockbuster movies, like they sell half they're ever going to sell in the first week, um, maybe more for these kinds of books and things move on and, you know, it, it happens. Um, I think you made the, you made the point that this was more feelings and emotional and about, mm-hmm. you know, family. And so it might have a domestic uh, draw that these more procedural, like, look how weird it is that Trump did this thing in the White House yesterday. Um, this is a more of a pillars in the earth kind of an understanding of what this person is, where they come from. Told from a perspective that a lot of people who buy books writ large are sympathetic to hearing. I'll throw myself mm-hmm. in with that group. Yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, hindsight is twenty twenty. In this in this case, hindsight is one million copies, uh, probably yeah. by now. So many, and the 
best-selling books of the year list of oh, yeah. 2020. This is going to be way up there. Like yeah. If this had come out um, before July, it would have been in that article that we were just discussing. I will, yeah, I have to also admit, like, I'm not going to buy a copy of this book mm-hmm. and read it, but I am incapable of passing a headline of like, here are 25 things that are explained by Mary Trump's book and not clicking on it and being like, uh... maybe this article with this nugget will finally make this make sense to me. Yeah, right. And there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot of money to be made in people trying to figure out things they want to figure out in a way that um, will make them feel good about figuring it out. Mm-hmm. I think this plays in, <laughs> into a lot of that. It says, you know, across all platform, across all medium, you know, um, audio, ebook, and print, the bestsellers list we just talked about was on print. I'll be curious to see where it falls. I'm guessing it didn't sell 700,000 copies in print. So it's probably not number one, even by itself. But what's the breakdown? Um, Any more? I think we're sort of given to understand that audio and ebook are kind of 50 ish percent mm-hmm. of sales at this point. It varies by title and time. And right now, who knows? Um, but I'd be fascinated to see who, who, and in, in, in what shape people are buying and consuming um, this particular book. I, I'm going to work, I have on my list to work on a list of like the Trump books, first week sales power uh. rankings like this is clearly the fastest one but is comey too comey sold fast i remember in that first michael wolf book and then the fury book um uh uh the bob woodward book i, mm-hmm. I remember them all selling very well but kind of in a narrow band and this is really broken out of that band because it's so bolton i think was the fastest selling book before this and it was 780 in the first week this was seven this was 950 in the first day so we're going to be approaching no, not an order of magnitude, but two to five times as many sales in the first week, maybe. I don't know where it's going to end up. Very, very interesting to see. Um, uh, on the other side, you know, someone who, who sold a few books, so cry no um, Phoenix tears for JKR, um, but her book sales do appear to be lagging, according to this article we saw um, as a result of, I think, the response to her transphobic comments um, mm-hmm. online and other places. I don't know. It was, has it been six years since she did that? Was it 48 hours? I don't know. It's Time is so wild for me right now that I can't even remember how long it was. I feel like it's a few weeks ago now at this point. I'm not looking at it right now. Um, but interesting to see there that um, there is some awareness effect going on. And you would think of all the, of all the living writers right now, that would have um, a moat that they could withstand pressure or press, you know, bad feeling like this. It would be this particular title and this particular series, but it doesn't seem to be. So I, that's an interesting phenomenon as well. I guess that may be our second, mm-hmm. that may be our second data point in Ameri- thinking about American dirt is, you know, we've, we've seen a widespread um, resistance from, you know, mostly the progressive left to a title and here it is again, and we can compare it to sort of same time period sales, and they appear to be down. So there you go. I'm not sure what else to say. Thought it was fascinating to see. I hadn't thought yeah. to think it, to look at it from that point of view. Yeah, I hadn't either. Just seeing J.K. Rowling is underperforming the market mm-hmm. is fascinating, and I think a, a real tipping point. I think we hit a real tipping point both in the. So like the bricks were stacked up in the wall, like JK Rowling had been consistently putting bricks into the stack of, you know, just multiple repeated and unapologetic and really awful transphobic statements. And folks hit a place where there was just no more patience Mm -hmm. or willingness to give like she, she ran out the benefit of the doubt, I think, um, or the benefit of people like being patient or overlooking it to try to separate the art from the artist or however yeah, or kind of an it. aunt joe phenomenon like aunt joe god she has this right thing but it's still aunt joe and you know that kind of a yeah, yeah. and and we're in a cultural moment where there's not much patience i think no. rightfully for um for any kind of missteps that seem to be uh, in her case like intentional or willfully obtuse mm-hmm. um this was not a like an accident where she didn't realize what she was saying, you no. know. And um, going to be interesting to see how that happens over time. I would love like first person narrative around this stuff, like booksellers taking the Harry mm-hmm. Potter books off of their store shelves. Like, are they being featured less often in online sales? Like, you know, people who bought this thing are also 
buying this other thing or, you know, sort of algorithmic. What are the algorithms doing with J.K. Rowling? Yeah, I was wondering, like, this is the what, right, that that seems to be lagging. My my question is the how. Like, what is the – what's the microtransaction that's happening? What's the median microtransaction that's causing this? Is it someone who is going to go buy – a new set of Harry Potters for their kids or as a gift or for themselves. And they're like, you know what? I'm going to go get something. One of the Rick Reardon presents, or I'm going to get city of brass or, you know, am I going to look for an alternative or I'm not going to, I'm going to get buy movies instead. Mm-hmm. I'm just fascinated to know if there is a representative moment of a buying behavior that affects this, or is it, or is it like you said, structural of some kind? I kind of can't imagine it would be, Frankly, because this like since so few people are in bookstores anyway, it's not yeah. like you're taking them off the end caps or something like that because ain't no one seeing the end caps. So uh, algorithmically, I don't, I, I can't imagine that Amazon's like, you know what? Let's reduce JKR's exposure by fourteen percent, and it goes into the computer and bleep blop loop. People are buying fourteen percent more, uh, fewer um, Harry Potter books. So yeah, I, I'd be really interested to know if if you encountered anecdotally for yourself or secondhand someone saying, you know what? I'm not buying the thing. Um, really be interested to hear about that podcast at bookrat.com. Uh, let's do a last sponsor break and then uh, we'll kind of wrap up the show here, I think. Adaptation time. Very excited for both of these, though. I, again, I, Elizabeth Moss, are we all right? I, I'm so concerned. Um, Elizabeth Moss is going to be starring in an Apple TV adaptation series of Lauren Bucus's. Is that how you say her last name? It's been a thousand years yeah, since I had a case right. say her last name. Because mm-hmm. Shining Girls came out in like 2013. The site wasn't that old, but it was a big book for the site, and we really recommended it, the heck out of it. Um, that's coming to Apple TV. Uh, it's a time-twisty murder mystery situation. Yeah, it's been I, a while. I, I, it's a, it's right. a wild book, and it's the kind of book that gets turns into a fuzz of strangeness yeah. over time. But I think... Mm-hmm. It should be a great TV show. That's my sense of it. And, and Elizabeth Moss, this is who you go to for distressed leading women who also could shoot someone in the face um, <laughs> at this point. Yes. Uh, Time-traveling serial killer was the pitch for yep. this when the, when the book first came out. It's been so long since 2013 <laughs> when That's I read so it. so long, yeah. The whole story is going to be fresh and surprising to me. But I think the most exciting part of this to me is Elizabeth Moss. Yep. Um, just continuing to take names yeah, um, will be, will be really cool to see. Yeah. Wild eyed, frizzy haired Elizabeth Moth taking revenge on the, on the man who did something very bad to her is, mm-hmm. I mean, you could have worse brands, I guess. <laughs> That's a pretty good brand. <laughs> all things considered. Um, yeah. I heard Rob Lowe on a podcast being interviewed on a podcast recently, and he was talking even about working with young Elizabeth Moss on oh, the West really? Wing and how, what an incredible, actor she was at the time when she was, I think, in her late teens or early 20s, maybe. Um, and to see the career that she's developed, you know, Peggy on Mad Men and then everything that's coming after it, it's stunning. And she's so, like, stealthy about it. Like, Elizabeth Moss yeah. is not in the gossip columns. She's not in the headlines. She's just out here, like, quietly being amazing. Totally. I'm, re- I'm really excited about it. So that's really exciting to see. The other one, I'm probably actually more excited for Amazon Greenlighting, uh, a TV adaptation or whatever we call this, streaming series adaptation uh, of Paper Girls, um, which is a really wonderful series of graphic novels uh, that's kind of like Lumberjanes meets Stranger Things is how I'd characterize it. I'm a few volumes behind, but it's got some supernatural. It's got some friends. It's set in the 80s, and the titular Paper Girls are these like tweens who – all have bike routes and meet up together to do their bike routes. And then like an octothorpe from space comes down and they get, <laughs> they get involved in like weird stuff happening. Um, that sounds amazing. It's I really mean... pretty great. And I, I don't even, I didn't get far enough in this to see, cause I was dropping it in. Cause it, this, this news just broke this morning. This one in the shining girls one, frankly, if it's going to be animated, it's going to be live action or what it's going to be. Um, it's not the saga I kind of want, but also mm. kind of don't want, I kind of always want it to be comics, but um, Paper Girls is kind of the the thing I would choose next. I've always wanted to see a Lumberjanes adaptation yeah. um, as well, but this one has sort of a. I, I love Stranger Things. Both Michelle and I really look forward mm-hmm. to it. So I, I I want more in that vein. And this has this. There's there's time travel, dimensional stuff. It's wild. I think it could have a really great following too. So those are two two adaptations. I'm super super excited. For. I'm gonna have to get on the Paper Girls train. I think I just missed it but this um anal- this analogy in the piece that we're looking at calls it goonies plus now and then trapped in hg wells's nightmare sure yeah you could go that way too like it's a <laughs> goonies, it's also overtly like, a mashup like i think it's very knowing that it is 
the progeny of other things. Right? Yeah. Um, Goonies plus now and then is just like the center of my formative pop culture. Yeah. Actually, you know, Ames might be, I'm sorry, I'm now speaking. So Ames <laughs> might be into paper girls right now. It's hard to know. I bet he would be. Yeah. It's, it's graphic novels are a little easier to deal with scary than TV shows and even books weirdly because mm-hmm. it's cartoony by nature where your brain can make things photorealistic in a way that can be off-putting yeah. to a, a young kid but yeah. um it'd be interesting to see if you speaking for that. of adaptations I just feel like I would be remiss not to say if you are listening to this show and you were a child of the 80s or 90s or even beyond and you have not watched the babysitters club on Netflix is it great I was wondering it's so the, good looking for something is, for our family and I've been circling yes yeah. do it it's so good mm. um there are like the storylines are great the girls are wonderful it's and it, it's really progressive and phenomenal um in a way that is just incorporated into the story like one of the babysitters goes to sit for a client has a, the um the child is a little girl and she learns that um, little girl is trans and has to learn to like communicate with other adults who want to misgender mm-hmm. the child. Um, and it's just handled in a really matter of fact and beautifully understanding way. And that happens repeatedly with different. So it, it really engages with social issues in an eyes open way that doesn't feel like a very special episode. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like, there's good adult stuff. Alicia Silverstone plays one of the moms um, and there's good humor for adults watching it too. Like I just shotgunned all of them. How many Saturday. are there? How many are I, there? I, I think there's 10 mm. and they're like half hour episodes. Okay. Um, it was a million degrees here and I pulled down the shades in the living room and I was like, I live on this couch and I'm doing this. And I kind of wondered, like, I loved the babysitters club as a kid, but I don't remember, like, I wasn't attached to any one of the characters in a really personalized way. And so I wondered, like, will I even remember who these characters are enough to make it meaningful? And it turns out that doesn't matter at all. Like, Mm. I, I think you can come into the babysitters club cold. I'm assuming it was not a formative part of your you know, it's, it's it's weird. I would have liked it as a kid. I, I, I mean, the you know the the boy girl stuff wouldn't have bothered me. That wouldn't have been a thing. I actually thought mm-hmm. it was. If this is gonna this is super specific, but like the cover design of the the available ones to me, mm-hmm. the the font and the title were like these really kind of like kids like baby blocky kind of letters. Yeah. Do you remember those? I can. And see it had that, the yeah. word baby in it. I just mm-hmm. thought it was much. I thought it was for like babies. Like I didn't even know what it was yeah. because I went through all the Nancy Drews and really liked that. So I like think I would have been cool with it. So I am really sad I that I missed would it. Have. I'm really yeah. sad that I missed I'm it. I'm sad for young Jeff too because yeah. like, they're really about. He was fine. Let's be honest. But it, that <laughs> he was. Turned okay. He turned out okay. turned out okay. Yeah. I, I think they're really about friendship and navigating oh. family life like very intentionally each of the girls in the group has a different family yeah. situation and that's also just on the page and in the stories um they get to be tween kids dealing with each other but also tween kids dealing with the world and dealing with their parents yeah. um it's it's wonderful it's so good yeah please okay. watch we're gonna it get to that family. we're gonna get to that before <laughs> Uh, too long. Uh, last, the last bit. I, I want to throw this in. Just you know, there's not much to say about it except some of this is it is a bookstore and it's a Trump bookstore and you know whatever that's a thing. But the other thing I want to talk about just for a second is kind of coming off the Harper's letter and cancel culture and free speech and what's at stake and what free speech and what isn't. This is an example of actual free speech violation kind of stuff happening. Roger mm-hmm. Cohen, um, sorry, Michael Cohen. No, no, no great hero. Him. He, no great hero, he um, sued to – he was put back in jail. He was on release, but he was put back in jail by William Barr. And then he and his legal team sued to be released again saying, you know, the reason I was put back in is they don't want me to finish writing the book I'm working on. And today the word came down that the judge agrees and he's back out and he's apparently working on this book that um, one of the, the – the one nugget – you know, that's coalescing around is like, it's a bunch of stuff about Trump's racism. Okay. Mm. Um, So this is what actual free speech violations look like. Just, just for the record, right? This is the, the the executive branch um, rescinding your parole so that you will not write your book, that you have a a legal right to write and self publish or get a book deal or whatever. This is not, this is what free speech, free Mm -hmm. speech violations are. Just, just remember that for, for the moment and take a look at that. And maybe we can, put in context people saying maybe I'm not going to buy J.K. Rowling's books anymore. Or maybe it's cool that the guy um, at the New York Times that let Tom Cotton come in and say we should throw the police 
into um, throw the feds into big cities because guess what? That's happening in my backyard. And I got to tell you, folks, that scene isn't great. And I don't know how much Tom Cotton's op-ed influenced Trump to make this decision, but I'm guessing it's a percentage above zero. So I just wanted to to bring that to bear because I think it's really important to remember what it actually looks like and not and not get too far down the rabbit hole of left fighting left or center left fighting center or whatever. It's like, on the other hand, you have the attorney general of the United States, according to a federal judge, saying you're trying to keep someone in jail to not write a book that otherwise would be true because they're not going to they're not going to sue for libel or slander. You know why? Because they can't prove it because it's right. not libel. So it's going to be the truth. So anyway, that's my story. Wanted to put it out there just to put a pin in that. I don't. I think I. I just can't let it go without be saying something about. It. I just yeah, can't let it go. I can't. Let abs- it go. Like, absolutely. And when we do talk about those stories that are falsely labeled as censorship or violations yeah. of First Amendments, usually we're, we're talking conceptually about like this is not a case where somebody was thrown in jail or faced legal repercussions for trying to say the thing mm-hmm. that they needed to say. And now we have this very concrete example <laughs> of someone actually experiencing that to hold up in contrast to right like. What a bookseller decides not to put on their yeah. shelves for any reason is not the same no. thing as an actual violation of the First Amendment. And I just think that the saddest the saddest part of this or one of the saddest parts of it is that the folks that need this object lesson are least likely to soak it in. There's not going to be a letter in Harper's <laughs> defending Michael Cohen. There just isn't going to be, which I can understand, but like... I also think it's important that maybe there's mm-hmm. that maybe sh- that would have been a more powerful letter. I think yes. in a lot of ways to say, um, here's where free speech is actually being abrogated. Um, habeas corpus, you're getting you're getting pulled into enterprise rental vans by people in camouflage without their name tags. I mean, l- let's let's just be careful <laughs> about getting up in arms about uh, violations of civil rights um, because we got plenty of real bad ones to mm-hmm. to worry about the marginal ones at this point. So there we go. That's our show podcast at bookriot.com if you'd like to shoot us an email you can find links to everything we talked about today bookriot.com slash listen we'll be back next week with another show and we stretched a lot of nothing into kind of a something there it turns out um we've been doing this a while yeah we know how to do this rebecca thank you we'll talk to you next week have a good one Bye.